All right, welcome to Making the Argument. Before we get started, I have a very important announcement. We have a brand new deal with GoodRanchers.com. That's right. If you go into Good Ranchers and you use promo code Nick and you sign up for one of their subscriptions, you're not only going to get $15 off, but do you remember the old deal where you got two pounds of ground beef with each order? Well, we just upped the game. That's right. You can choose top sirloin, salmon, chicken breast, or bacon now. Every single order you get on that subscription is going to come with free. Top sirloin, salmon, chicken breast, or bacon. You get to choose which one if you use promo code Nick. And again, $15 off on top of that. That's a savings of $480 in meat by signing up for one of those subscriptions. Not to mention the fact that if you are looking for a gift for someone that is impossible to shop for, you can go on to GoodRanchers.com and get one of their brand new gift boxes. Now, this is a limited time only offer. It's part of their overall Black Friday special. So go on to GoodRanchers.com to get more details. Sign up for promo code Nick and to get that deal and let's get on with the show. All right, on today's episode, we have a special guest with us, somebody that has been an absolute champion of liberty, fighting back against government intervention and interference in every aspect of our lives, not just on, on general policy, but specifically, this guy and his organization has probably done more um, than, than any other group out there to try to create literature that is accessible and entertaining and informative to our kids. Like so many of us within the homeschool movement, you know, when you're trying to express principles of liberty, I mean, look, I like any good homeschool parent made my kids read Thomas Sowell's Basic Economics at the age of 12. And we're still working through that in counseling. But that's only because I didn't realize that there was such a thing as the Tuttle Twins series. And so today we have our special guest, Connor Boyack. And as much as he is a champion for liberty, if you stick around to the end of this podcast, we're actually going to reveal, we're actually going to reveal a uh, kind of the dark underbelly of Connor because there is one aspect of his life where he actually promotes a brutal, violent, totalitarian dictatorship. Right, which I know is going to come as a shock, but we're going to get into that. We're going to we're going to we're going to peel that back, and we're going to expose that today on this channel. But until then, Connor, how are you doing, man? Great to have you on. <laughs> what a what a teaser! I can't wait to hear this at the end. You'll be uh, <laughs> that'll make a good YouTube clip if nothing else. I'm I'm happy to be here. I'm excited uh, for the conversation. Thanks for having me. Well, great. Let me introduce you to the room real quick. We've got my beautiful bride, Tina, Queen of the Bees. Hello, everyone. We've got our resident historian and political prognosticator, Christian Hines. Hello. And of course, as always, our producer, Nicholas Hamilton, the good Hamilton, the one that does not like central banking. That's correct. It's great to be here. All righty. Well, hey, Connor, listen, uh, you have done so much work with, um, you know, I, it was funny. I, I, we've got a couple other ones called Libertas, but you pronounce it a little bit different. Your institute in Utah. So that's Libertas, correct? We say, yeah, we say Libertas. And when I started it, I had no idea how to pronounce it. I asked a linguist and he's like, well, it's a dead language. You know, there's two schools of thought. It's the the kind of Anglicanized Germanic Libertas, which is how most Americans pronounce it. And then there's like the Italian, like you hold your hands up, Libertas, you know, and I thought that sounded more romantic and cool, so we ran with it. Yeah, it, yeah. Is, it is definitely cooler. So, so tell us a little <laughs> bit about this organization. You know, th this is one I, I will tell everybody that's listening. As a member of the Virginia General Assembly, uh, this is one of the organizations I've gone to to look at what they've been working on. Some of the um, the legislation that they've that they've worked on in Utah. They actually have a really good success record. So, tell us a little bit about why that got off the ground, how it got off the ground, and what you're actually doing with it. 
So the short version is uh, I'm from California. I'm an exile uh, before it was cool. Uh, but, you know, while there were still U-Haul trucks, you could actually find and, and rent uh, to leave California. I've been in Utah for the past 23 years. And uh, so I came here for college and I, I stayed. When I looked around, despite Utah having all these accolades of being, you know, best for business, best governed state and being at the top of all these rankings, what I found were a ton of problems that no one was addressed. There wasn't really any kind of institutional focus in terms of like a grassroots policy type organization. And so I spent some time working with other groups that already existed. I felt they weren't really doing much. So I decided to start my own, had no clue what I was doing, but had these like grandiose visions of, of growing this team and doing a lot of good. And when I started Libertas, people in Utah were like, are you kidding me? Like, we're, we're a red state. We're best in all these things. Why do we need another organization? To which I would say, well, sure, we're number one on all these rankings. But do you remember in eighth grade when we were graded on a curve on that math test? <laughs> and just because you got an A doesn't mean you were great. It meant you didn't suck as bad as everyone else. <laughs> you know, that's how, that's how these indexes are with these states. And so there's clearly room for improvement. Every state, I think every state has a right of center think tank. In fact, for those listening, you can go to spn.org. That stands for State Policy Network. And they're kind of the national association, if you will, for all of these libertarian conservative type of organizations. Uh, and so we're all members of that. We share best practices. We collaborate. And uh, it's a pretty effective way to kind of learn from one another. But what I found is that some of these uh, think tanks are, let's say, uh, less effective than others. We're a very effective group. We've changed over 100 laws, seven or eight of them were the first of their kind in the whole country. And so as of two years ago, now we've changed as an organization to capacity where we go help think tanks in other states or elected officials like yourself directly to say, here's these wins that we've had. Let us help you replicate them in your backyard. And we'll, you know, here's the research talking points, you know, video marketing collateral, whatever you need you know, let's support you in doing that. And so now kind of like Goldwater Institute has done for a few years there in Arizona, uh, and they've kind of done this with their right to try uh, legislation. We're now following that path and saying, we call it nail it, then scale it, right? So we'll we'll nail something here in Utah where we've got a really good thing going, but now we'll scale it to other states and help groups across the country do what we've done as well. No, that, that's great. And yeah, that coming up with something good that you can easily replicate across other places is so much easier. I mean, I can tell people from when, whenever you're trying to do something for the first time within a legislature, it's incredibly difficult. Cause one of the first questions you get asked at committee is, has this ever been done before? What were the results, et cetera, et cetera. And yep. so, and, and that's the other point that I really like is you do have people that live in what's considered, they will consider themselves, well, we're a super red state. Okay. Well, why do you say that? Well, because we voted for, you know, Trump by 62%. Okay, but have you looked at your state laws? Like, have you have you recognized that you have these ridiculous right. occupational licensing requirements? I mean, do you realize that you know X, Y, or Z is a felony in your state? Like, do you, do you realize these things? And, and it really has it, it. Unfortunately, we've gotten to this idea where if your if your state goes overwhelmingly for the Republican candidate for president, that means that you must be a state that embraces you know, individual liberty and uh, free markets and property rights. And, and no, in a lot of cases, you know, it, horrible cronyism, bad tax laws, you know, and like you said, yeah, sure. If you're comparing your state to, you know, California on tax policy, well then, yeah, you're probably looking pretty good, but that doesn't mean it, it's what it yep. should be. Um, I got to ask you a quick question. Uh, where in California? 
San Diego. Oh, okay. Yeah, we're we're originally from Chico, California. So we also we call ourselves refugees. We're we're not the ones that uh, left and said, "Wow, we've got this all figured out. We should transport this to other states." We were ones that, gosh, we remember when California. You know what was the, the term now is for um, California transplants that are like moving out of the state to places like Arizona. No, and they call them leftugees. Left you, geez. Oh my gosh. It, it's a pun in, in more than one way. They left California and yeah, also well, from the I, politics. I got, in, I got in trouble once because uh, I, I, I described something called the locust effect. And it was essentially the idea of, you know, uh, when, a, when a, locust, a locust goes to an area of bounty, you know, strips it bare and then leaves and go to another area of bounty and strips it bare and, and never wakes up to the fact that, gosh, maybe, maybe I got something to do with this. And like, you're comparing people to insects. Like, no, I'm eh, whatever. Well, that, so that's interesting. So you, you, you set up, um, Libertas, you guys have been, you know, highly successful in Utah. And again, it, it really is an important model because too many people in red States think as long as our, you know, as long as we're not doing what California is doing or Massachusetts is doing, we're, we're okay. When in reality, if you're not constantly fighting, um, you know, for, for, you know, greater, you know, perfection, more movement toward that ideal of, you know, liberty markets, property rights, um, you know, over time you'll, you'll slip and, and you'll, you'll see the Overton window shift. And I, I think what you guys do is so important there, but there's another area that like we hammer home on this show all the time. And that is, if you're only engaging politically, you're losing. If you're not engaging culturally, you're in a lot of trouble. And, and, and everybody, every political organization I know, everyone that I work with will look at me like, oh yeah, no, we totally agree. Yeah. William F. Buckley, right? Politics downstream from culture, right? Check, check, bye. Um, but there's very few organizations that have actually taken it seriously. And have done a good job taking it seriously. Like we were, we were talking a little bit before the show how there, there's organizations out there and there's groups out there. And, and look, I, I was raised, you know, conservative uh, Christian. That's, that's how I identify myself now as part of the, you know, the liberty movement. And I can say growing up in the 80s and, and uh, you know, 90s and whatnot, there was a lot of um, Christian or conservative, we'll call it entertainment, <laughs> Sure. Right. Shows yeah. that you watched, music that you listened to. I'm not to. sure you can call it entertainment. <laughs> just... Books that books that you bought, where it was like, oh wow, is it really good? It's like, oh, it's yeah, it's it's uh yeah, no, it's it's done by these really great people. Yeah, but is is the movie any good? Yeah, it has it, great <laughs> values, super values. And okay, but is it any good? No. <laughs> right. But but you guys, <laughs> you guys have actually, you know, walked into this realm, which is difficult, takes a lot of creativity. And that's the, the Tuttle twins books. And, and now you've actually moved on to, you know, full cartoons and everything like that, that, you know, I've sat and watched with my, my, um, my youngest daughter and they're genuinely good. Yeah. I think you discovered the Tuttle twins books after making Lily read basic economics yeah. by Thomas Sowell. Yeah. And, um, with so the other, our, our second two children, uh, yeah. or our, our second and third child got the benefit of the Tuttle twins and <laughs> did not have to go through the grueling uh, college level reading yeah, they, at, in eighth grade. They got, they got to learn about the federal reserve from the creature from Jekyll Island instead of, you know, daddy walking them through, you know, yeah. soul much or, more or, age appropriate. You know, so, so tell us about, tell us about Helping the Tuttle you twins. Guys save on your therapy. Yeah. Helping you save on your therapy bills. <laughs> oh, yes, exactly. With your first. 
So tell tell us about You're the welcome. books. Tell us about the books first, and because um, I know you got a new new one that's just come out. But tell us about the Tuttle Twins series and why parents should be aware of this and why it's so helpful for them. Well, let me let's start, uh, Nick. What you were mentioning about you know these organizations that we say, "Yay, culture! Yeah, we got to do it," but then we do nothing about it. I was at a Atlas Network event um, a few years back. Atlas Network is like state policy network I mentioned for all these think tanks, but international. So they include groups fighting for freedom in you know Borneo and Bangladesh and everywhere in between. And they had this slide up on the screen showing the cumulative budget of all of these organizations across the world. I don't even remember what the number was. It was you know, 100 million plus or something like that. And it was designed to say, look at the strength of our movement. Look at what we're accomplishing. Look how we've grown, the resources we've been able to create and the good that we're doing with that. And and the slide, of course, was meant for this kind of self-congratulatory thing like, yay us. And, and sure, there's an aspect of that where we should kind of celebrate that we've been able to accomplish that. That's good. However, my reaction was a negative one. I looked at that slide and I wondered what percentage of that is focused on the youth? What percentage of that is focused on the rising generation? The analogy that came to mind is that we are in an orchard full of these decaying, diseased, knotted old trees. And we are the gardeners, we freed fighters, and we are heaping bucket loads of fertilizer on these old trees, hoping that we can restore them to good health. And that work is important. We should do that. We've, you know, sunk cost fallacy, not a fallacy notwithstanding. We've invested a lot in these trees. We want to save them. We want them to bear good fruit. However, any good gardener worth his salt is focused also on the seeds and the saplings to make sure that they're spared that same diseased fate in the future. Where are we as a movement in doing that? We have been relegating to the so-called left the upbringing of our children during their most formative years of intellectual development and saying, ah, when they're adults, we'll talk to them. When yeah. By then, it's too late. It's very costly, very time intensive to get someone to change their mind. I'm not satisfied with playing defense for decades. That's not why I signed up for this. That's not what you know gets me excited in the morning. I want to go on the offense. And that's exactly what we're doing with the Tuttle Twins. This all started because I would come home from my think tank job and my then five-year-old, I have two kids, they were five and three at the time this started happening. I had to ask them like any dad does, hey, what did you do today? And who did you play with and whatever? And my five-year-old started to reciprocate that question. Dad, what did you do today? I'm like, uh, typed on a computer. You know, like, how do you how do you talk to a five-year-old about fighting eminent domain? You yeah. know, like how do you how do you talk to a six-year-old about socialism? Yeah. Well, so son, let's discuss fiat Bazan. currency. <laughs> exactly. Uh, and then therapy after that. So um, I went on Amazon and I went looking for books that would teach my kids. There's books on potty training and the birds and the bees and all this, right? And I looked around, couldn't find anything. And so a buddy of mine, Elijah, who's our uh, illustrator, my partner, he and I were talking about this for a few months. Like, you know, what about this idea and should we do it? And so we decided, hey, heck with it. You know, we're just going to do a book, labor of love, fun little thing. Maybe it'll turn into nothing. But we wanted it for our kids. And so we said, if we only do one book, what should we what should we do? And we decided to base our book off of the law by Fred Ostiat. So it talks all about justice and proper role of government, freedom and all that. And I distinctly remember when I knew that we were onto something. I was at Freedom Fest in 2014, the year that we launched. I had this booth way back in the corner because, you know, we weren't sponsoring or anything. We were yeah. just, you know, getting the the scraps, whatever booth space they had left over. And I've got this booth, the whole thing's about the law. And I'm thinking, hey, here's all these libertarians who have read the original book, 
you know, their parents, their grandparents, they'll want to get this version for their kid. Yeah, we were having, we were talking to a few people, whatever. But I had also put the book on our website that we had just launched the week prior. And so on my phone, I'm getting these notifications every hour or two of a sale that we're making. And I'm sitting behind the booth at Freedom Fest in Vegas and everyone's off in their, you know, meetings. And I'm sitting there by myself chatting with the guy at the booth next to me. And I get this notification on my phone. Someone had ordered 50 copies. I'm like, what? You know, scroll down. And it's Ron and Carol Paul buying a copy <laughs> for all of their grandkids. And, and I'm like, and he's the reason I'm in this movement to begin with. And yeah. so I'm like, That's the father goes, of the happening. freedom movement. Is <laughs> it's happening. <laughs> so that to me was the... That to me was the signal at the beginning and, and we haven't looked back. Now we've got 4 million books sold, translated in 12 languages. We've got curriculum and a game and a podcast and a cartoon. And my vision is uh, I want to create a content empire where no matter the age of your child and no matter how they like to learn, because some kids prefer to listen to an audiobook versus watch a cartoon or have a tactile you know, activity workbook or something they can do. I want something for every kid to be able to learn the ideas of liberty in a way that's accessible to them. And so that's kind of the vision that we're pursuing and really building out a lot of resources for families, uh, for their kids of different ages to be able to have meaningful discussions about this you know it's not for us about getting into the classroom necessarily and just having a teacher blab for 30 minutes and then they move on what we're really trying to do is foster meaningful powerful family discussions at the dinner table where mom and dad are learning alongside their kids oftentimes for the first time i mean the majority of our customers they never read hayek or bastiat or mises or rothbard or any of the people upon whose books our own are based. So for them, a lot of times this information is new. They didn't learn it in school. And so we're hitting entire families to learn about these ideas together. And, 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 you know, I don't think, and Nick, you'll agree, like, I don't think freedom is going to be saved at the Capitol or in the courtroom by lobbying or litigating or whatever. I think America is going to be saved at the dinner table by making sure that we're talking to our kids about these ideas. We're instilling them with critical thinking that cultural kind of uh, transformation can take place. And then in the aggregate, that creates the kind of political uh, effects that we want to see. And so that's what the Tuttle Twins is aiming for. Well, and again, I I think I I just, I love to hear someone explain not only kind of the genesis of how it happens, but also the the philosophy and the reason why they're doing it in the first place. Because again, what what you said is absolutely true. Even if you get a good bill passed, we should totally do that. If you don't have if if you don't have a um, a culture which understands why it was necessary, right? If you were just able to convince enough legislators in a given year to vote for something, um, but you don't have a culture that understands why that was particularly necessary, you're going to lose it in two, four to six years. And um and and it's funny that you say that at the dinner table. Like I've done that before, where we've assigned. Hey kids, you're gonna you're gonna read this one, and then you're gonna come to the dinner table, and at the dinner table, you're gonna explain to me where I'm gonna ask you questions. You're gonna explain to me, you know, what you learn, and and we use the one of, because of everything that was going on with inflation, we use the Tuttle Twins book about the creature from from Jekyll Island, and and talking about the concept of of what you know money or currency actually is, and and how the government's manipulated it, and when we talk about inflation, we're not just talking about prices going up, we're talking about the government actively doing something to the monetary supply, and um and and again they were able to you know I can sit there and express explain this all to them, or I can I can have them in the Tuttle Twins book, they can learn about it in an in an environment that makes sense within a context that makes sense to them. And then when we explain the principles and we expound upon that, they get it and they understand it. And and I will tell you what is the 
the best moment, because that conversation at the dinner table is great when you start to see the light bulbs go off in your kid's head. The best moment is when your kid comes home from school or theater practice or whatever it is, right? And we homeschool. So for us, a lot of it was um, like my daughter coming home from, you know, theater or coming home from like cosmetology school. And, you know, the subject of the minimum wage came up or the subject of, you know, some of the government policy come up and she's just sitting there and, and well, how did that conversation go? And she's just explaining, and, and again, she hasn't set herself up as the resident, you know, conservative or, or, you know, libertarian within her particular friend group. She's just there doing her job, making friends, socially hanging out. But then when these topics come up, she feels equipped to be able to discuss them, not just to win an argument, but to actually convince somebody. And, and she has done a, a better job than her dad has many times on, on being able to have a conversation with someone that's willing to give her an audience, willing to listen to her because they, you know, they like Lily and, oh, wow, I never thought of it that way before. And, you know, it, that part is just, it, it's so important. And you guys just came out with a, another book, um, that's, I mean, this is kind of off of the Tuttle Twins series, correct? Yeah. So, so, I mean, we've got critical thinking books, entrepreneurship books. I mean, we, we got all kinds of resources we're creating brand new thing that we launched for the 4th of July is a brand new American history book. And this one is two and a half years in the making. I was actually at a group um, event with a bunch of other organizations and a donor brought us together in Chicago for the sole purpose of saying, look, the left has 1619 project and critical race theory and all this stuff is heating up. What are we doing about this to teach civics and American history from a conservative libertarian perspective? And the whole day went by and nothing really productively came of it in terms of collaboration between organizations. I said, you know, I'm going to initiate our own project when I get home. I went to Amazon and eBay and I bought all the leading social studies textbooks. Uh, I mean, I've got some sitting over here on my on my bookshelf, these you know, big fat textbooks that you'd wear as a fifth grader in your backpacks giving you back problems at the age of 12 and, <laughs> and so we read all these books and we're trying to understand how well are they doing and talking about the principles of the declaration of independence the revolution the constitution and all that and we get done with this analysis and and the long and short of it is these books these textbooks did a phenomenal job at teaching superficial history names yeah. dates battles who wrote what to when and where they went and all that stuff um, and, and so if that's your goal as a parent or educator, great. Use one of those textbooks. But we all know this quote, those who don't learn from the past are condemned to repeat it. We say this all the time. We under, It's kind of like your politics is downstream of culture, right? We nod yeah. our head and then move on and don't do anything about it. Same thing with this quote. We say, oh, yeah, if we don't learn from the past, we're condemned to repeat it. None of those textbooks that we reviewed helps kids in any way learn from the past. Mm -hmm. Really teach kids about the past. It's like we're walking kids through the Museum of American History and we're like, oh, look, you know, they used to dress like that and they used to <laughs> eat funny things like that. Okay, kids, let's go to the cafeteria. And it's this very cursory, superficial yeah. review of history. So what we did in this book, this goes uh, from the, all the way from the 1200s through 1776 and it's volume one. So we're going to hopefully do a four volume series and keep going through history. But this one through 1776. And the main thing is we're not just talking about what happened. More importantly, we're talking about the ideas. Why did these people do what they did? John Adams has this great quote where he effectively says that the, the real revolution happened in the 15 years preceding 
the first shot being fired at Lexington and Concord. Yeah. And he's talking about the intellectual revolution that people were going through, John Locke and Tom Paine and all these guys. And, uh, and these textbooks are completely devoid of these ideas. At best, they say, oh, they were upset about no taxation yeah. without representation. And while true, that's like the tip of the iceberg. Yeah, it's like and the so 17th out of 27 things. You read that we did the Declaration of Independence <laughs> here. The, no taxation without representation essentially was like the 17th complaint out of 27 listed in the Declaration of Independence. Yeah. And most people don't even know that. Yeah, they don't know about all these other grievances in the document. And so our, our book is designed to say it's important to review what happened, sure, but let's talk about the ideas for which they thought was motivating them to do these things. And then once we cover those ideas, we have a discussion about what does it mean for us today? Let's actually try and learn from the past in a way that we can apply it to our present and future and help kids start to develop that muscle. All those muscles are atrophied in, in, in school because kids are never exercising this this idea, this process of learn from the past, apply it to the present. And so our book is designed to kind of help uh, flex that muscle a little bit and get kids thinking about how things that happened 250 years ago are relevant or yeah. the ideas from those events are relevant today. Well, and I think this is I think this is so important for the, the reason you mentioned with respect to teaching them why the history is relevant. And, and that's important not simply because um, I, I mean, obviously that's the point of studying history, but if you really want kids to have an appreciation for history, then they have to understand why it was going on. And, and instead so much of, of what you learn, um, you know, and I, I went to, I went to public school, at least for, you know, elementary school and whatnot. So much of it was just kind of this rote memorization. Right. Um, and, and it, it really didn't go into the, why a lot of these things were happening or even worse. And I can even say this about the Christian school I went to. I had textbooks there that was trying to explain to me how FDR saved us from the Great Depression. Oh, my God. And then you find out later how just blatantly false that is and how there, there, was this, there was this series of, I mean, you can only describe them as court historians. And in fact, like I'm watching Christian over here begin to fume because Christian is a historian. And there, there's these certain grand narratives that have been pushed within our, you know, our elementary, middle school, high school textbooks that just create this complete, this total departure from actual reality. And, and you ask yourself, why are they doing this until you recognize that, oh, okay, well, it's a government run school that is essentially promoting the role of government and managing the economy, yep. managing education. Managing I think that's only half of it though. I think that's a, well, maybe more than half, but like, there's also this tendency for people to glorify strongmen throughout history. It's easy to write a history of one person rather than millions of people, you know, rather than the invisible hand of the free market doing things. It's much yeah. easier for you to write a history of Alexander the Great or Julius Caesar or FDR. Yeah. You know, it, it, oh, the depression was saved by one man who passed yeah. all these bills and created this giant government rather than, you know, complex processes within the marketplace eventually sorting itself out in spite of the fact that yeah. the federal government made the depression worse. That's a much harder story to write. And, Part of the it's reason, a much much part of story to put into a you know okay I have a block of two weeks to talk about this but if that yeah, yeah. and so the teachers and then, and then there's a test I got to make sure that they can answer exactly. questions too so just and part of the reason I like the stuff that Connor does is so like I've got a sister who it was about a year ago that she asked me and she she's like seven years younger than me she asked me you know like well why can't the federal government just print a whole bunch of money to fix this problem and <laughs> I had to Funny, I mean, the Fed has asked that same question <laughs> I had to like <laughs> sit down and explain and it was painful I had to explain like 
you don't understand. If we print money, prices will eventually go up as a consequence of that because you're devaluing the yeah. value of your money. And then she's like, well, then just don't raise prices. <laughs> and then I had to explain why price controls are a bad thing. Yeah. And if you print a bunch of money, but then you also impose price controls, then you're going to get shortages. Yeah. And and it was such a battle to get her to a point where she could understand what I was trying to get at. And I really, really wish that like I had the stuff that Connor does back when my sister was like 10 years younger than she is now. Well, and I think, and I think that really is like, we have a policy in our, in our legislative office that whenever a, a student organization asks us to speak, they instantly get priority. And, and the reason why is because they're still going through formative years where, where they're, where they're learning about these things. And, and what I found was, is that the moment it clicked for me, the moment it clicked for me on looking at, at, at like at a foundational level, right? Not just being able to repeat what Milton Friedman might have said about something. When it when I changed my way of thinking about these things, all of a sudden, when some politician would spout off like, oh, let's just forgive all the student loan debt, you instantly understand, well, no, you can't forgive the debt. You can only transfer it on to people that didn't take out the loans. And that's going to create perverse incentives because why would I pay back my college loan if you're just going to – so this never-ending spiral of – problems as a result of that. But if, if you don't, if, if that doesn't click and, and the, the critical thinking component that, that you talked about, Connor, if that doesn't click initially or at an early age, people can be led to believe, you know, Art, Art Laffer has this quote, he goes, you know, without data, you can do anything. <laughs> and, well, it's the reason why we what? have, we have so many, think about all the man on the street interviews that yeah. you see where it's something really basic and the oh, people yeah. do not have a clue I mean, they, they will completely guess the wrong president for something. I mean, like, right. who you know, who founded the United States of America? And they're like, was it uh, George Bush? Yeah. I mean, it was the we, it's the weirdest thing, some of the answers that these people give. And I think part of the reason why is because you have to be interested in order to store these things into your long-term memory. Right. And I remember yeah. when we were in school, we never made it more than halfway through the book ever. Ever. And that's, right. that's one difference with homeschooling is we always make it through the book. Um, <laughs> but the other thing, too, is uh, they would always have those questions at the back of the chapter. Yep. And they were literally just questions to make sure you read the material. That's all it was. It was just checking up on you. And I remember the teachers always making you copy the question and then writing out your answer. And you would get docked points for not yep. putting down the my, question. My so my thought was... You know what? So we're so data. We're focused on getting through all this data that we're not focusing on why this happened, what the ramifications were, Context. what the lessons were yeah. to learn from it. Well, and and, and to that point, um, you know, you mentioned this earlier, Connor. And this is kind of leads me to the next point. I want to talk about the 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 cartoons and kind of the other the other mediums that you use to be able to make this information available. Because one of the big things that we recognize about homeschooling is we have three kids that came from the same two people. That learn very differently very and have different different interests and and um, you know uh, objectives and goals for their lives, and and we found that you know if, if we put them into a, a standard school setting, they were going to get a standard school response to all of that. And yeah, there might be certain programs they could go into to help. So for instance, both of my daughters love to read; they just enjoyed it, the whole deal. But both of my daughters also didn't really have didn't really like math as much. We were able to quickly adapt curriculums based off of their individual needs. My son, on the other hand, just, he doesn't like reading much. I mean, he does it, but he just, he doesn't like, but man, the, the whole, um, you know, hands-on learning, um, put a, put a 3d printer in front of him and he will just create things that are incredible with, with 
no guidance, like no official guidance or school. He just goes and finds the the information because he's interested in it and 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 does incredible things there. So you, you've you've moved into these other mediums. Talk a little bit about that and what that process looks like. So we had done the Tuttle Twins books for a few years and built a community and we're always kind of learning from our community. What, what do you, what, what can better empower your families, you know, to learn more. And uh, parents were all often talking about video content. And so we started to probe into that and it's like, well, the, all these cartoons are going woke and stupid and I don't feel good about them. You know, we're canceling Disney plus, I don't let them watch Nickelodeon anymore. And so we were starting to see that there was this desire for a uh, cartoon and, uh, I, I'm connected to uh, the they're called the Harmon Brothers. These uh, bunch of brothers. They have the company. They started VidAngel. Now it's Angel Studios, <clears throat> and they're uh, best known now for being the group behind The Chosen, yeah, which is a multi-season series about Jesus. That unlike all the other Christian quote-unquote entertainment you were mentioning <laughs> yeah. earlier. Uh, this is like, you know, I, I call it HBO quality, which I should stop using because most of the crap on HBO is garbage, but, yeah. uh, but like extremely good writing, really compelling drama. It's just a really good show yeah. and it's blown up. And so they started looking around saying, okay, uh, that's the flagship show for Apple studios. We want to build out this kind of family, fr- family friendly, edifying, but really good quality content and basically become a streaming service where families can feel good about letting their kids watch anything here because it's educational, aspirational, um, and all the rest. And so we started uh, figuring out this idea to do a cartoon, and we did some kind of test uh, you know, pilots and scripts and stuff. And the, the genius of the model that we're using, I think, is you know the books are, I would say, 80% educational, 20% you know, entertaining. They're not just fun, silly stories. There's yeah. a lot of like powerful ideas packed in there's a lot of meat. Uh, a story to just kind of move things forward yeah there's a lot of meat you spend a lot of time going through one book the the cartoon we flipped it it is 80 percent educational uh excuse me 80 percent entertaining 20 percent educational and the reason for that is we decided that the writing teams for all of the episodes would be comedians so these are people <laughs> who have you know comedic timing and a lot of background and just cracking jokes and we wanted this two-track experience where you know, with with some of these cartoons, I think of The Simpsons because that's what we did as a family growing up. Where there would be the really little, you know, humor for kids to find it funny, the wisecracks and whatnot. But then there was the educated track of jokes, this kind of layer on top that the adults would understand, the more educated and refined jokes. And so, much like our books are a family learning resource for mom and dad to read together with the kids and talk about together, we want the cartoon to be not just something that you send your kids on Saturday morning to go watch on their own. But that the whole family could watch, the parents would find it worth their time. They would enjoy the little, you know, adult humor, not adult as in pornographic, adult as in, <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah. refined and intellectual, right? And I should clarify that this being a kid's cartoon and all. <laughs> um, and, and so it's it's blown up. It's gone so well. And, and for me, if you think of like the traditional funnel strategy and marketing, you know, top of funnel, then you lead people down type of deal. Like to me, the cartoon is top of funnel where we, it, it's free. You can download the Angel Studios app on your Roku or Apple TV or phone or whatever. It's all, all on YouTube as well. Yeah. The idea is let's put the cartoon out there for free, get as many people watching it as possible, sprinkle those seeds, and then you know the people who are interested in more can get the books, the curriculum, and so on, and continue learning. Well, no, and you've done a great job. It's I, I always say that when you're when you're watching something with your kids, especially um, you know younger kids, you you can tell when. You can tell when a cartoon has captured a larger audience be, for the exact reason you mentioned. 
And that is there'll be times when your kids laugh, there'll be times when the adults laugh, and there'll be times when both of them laugh at the same thing. Um, and, and it actually kind of creates a connection. And then also, it also ends up kind of creating questions. Why was that funny? Oh, because he's referencing this. Yep. Um, and then the next thing you know, yep. there, there's a, and I, and I noticed this with our kids early on, is that when we would watch stuff together, we had cultural points of references with our kids that they didn't necessarily have with their friends. And, and it was funny because they would bring it up every once in a while. And I, I remember watching like uh, Jane Austen, uh, BBC, you know, adaptations and stuff like that, uh, which was great for our daughters because it, it um, you know, all of them were like, oh my gosh, daddy, did you see she, she kissed that young man and they're not even engaged. I'm like, I know that's just, I can't believe that's horrible. But, um, but it was like my daughter every once in a while from like Jane Austen's um, Pride and Prejudice. She was like, oh, she's like, well, okay, what's wrong? What, why does your friend bother? Dad, she's kind of a Lydia. Like, oh, okay, all right, that's why she bothers you, right? Or so it, whenever you have, and, and it's it's important because it creates a connection with your kids um, when you yep. can't do that. And you guys have done that on, a, on an intellectually rigorous level to where something would happen, I would laugh, and like my daughter might say, well, why was that funny, Daddy? Oh, because of this. And now she knows too. And and it's not just you know, funny to her, maybe for a similar reason or, but now it's a moment that we had, you know, watching this and funny. And when it comes up again, that that's a sure moment. So I think that's, that's really important, but, um, but yeah, I just, I gotta, I gotta tell you, it, it's, it's been a, it's been a pleasure watching you guys develop this and, um, and really elaborate on it. Um, I want to be respectful of your time, but I promised my audience something and that was to uncover <laughs> Um, to uncover this deep, dark secret, Connor, that quite frankly, on this show, we hold our own accountable. And as much as I might like or appreciate what you're doing, I think it's about time we talk about the fact that in, in this public-facing portion of your life, you might like to talk about liberty and free markets and the Tuttle Twins. But then on another side of your life, you actually Foster, deliberately yeah. sponsor a, a totalitarian matriarchal dictatorship where the men are killed, literally killed as soon as their purpose, purpose is served. And, and you want to talk about a political system, a political system where the, the totalitarian, the dominant totalitarian then and goes and executes the children of that could be her potential enemies. I mean, you in want their to, infancy in their infancy, right? You want to talk about a Herod approach to political hierarchies and, and, and Connor, you support all of this. And I want you to tell us more about beekeeping. <laughs> <laughs> well, you can take it up with God. If you have a concern <laughs> with the uh, structure of how this all works, the group uh, think I, that you, would, often, yeah. Uh, Oh yeah, no, it, it's, I've been beekeeping for gosh, uh, seven, eight years. And I found that exact same thing. So interesting. It is the, the proletariat, right? It is a, kind of worker driven economy. They're doing all the work. They exist solely to produce this meager amount and then they die, but it's all about the collective. Um, and it's fascinating to see how it thrives and how it works. Now, granted, they don't have a lot of, you know, there's no emotion in there and human dynamics and psychology and the rest. And so maybe that's why it works. Maybe that's why if we were all the Borg or we were, you know, these uh, yeah. machines, uh, if you will, then collectivism could work. Uh, but, but it is really interesting to see that dynamic. And, and, and I will tell you this, Nick, you'll appreciate this, um, in, in Utah. So Utah's symbol is the beehive, the, the old school, like Winnie the Pooh kind, right. Yeah. That you yeah. see kind of like, looks like a little dome, right. 
and um, it has a little hole in the bottom. And that's called a skep. It's basically a, an inverted basket with a hole in the bottom. And, uh, and that's how beekeepers used to operate. So that's the state symbol, Utah's heritage. There's a connection to bees uh, for religious reasons. And so that became the state symbol of representing industry, hard work, you know, and productivity. And it's up at our capital. It's in all the little emblems and all the decor and it's just everywhere. Right. And, and so here's the state symbol, this, this kind of representation of Utah and industry and Utah law bans beepers from using it and the reason is because you can't manage bees and uh and inspect them for disease and treat them if they're just in a basket because you can't remove right versus the the modern they're called <laughs> yeah, the there's no frames the, yeah. the removable things exactly and so so utah bans the use of its state symbol for beekeepers and beyond that and and i don't know if this is the case in your neck of the woods it is in many states uh, in utah the 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 beehive state no less um, that which is the state slogan or whatever they call that, uh, they compel beekeepers to register their beehives with the state. And the purpose for this is this is COVID tracing, but you know, it's been around for a long time. The idea being beekeep, uh, bees are social creatures. They'll fly for miles. They'll interact with other bees and bees do have certain sicknesses that are contagious that can be fatal to a colony. So the government's idea is, well, if, if we can identify that your hive has this disease and then we have a database of, of all the beekeepers in the surrounding area, we can notify them so that they can prophylactically, you know, treat their bees. And it's literally COVID tracing. Who were you around and where did you go? OK, let's go notify those people so they can isolate and. Well, and Tina, so ma- Tina makes all and, of her uh, bees wear little masks. That's that's <laughs> no. uh, even better, even better. And so I, like many beekeepers, do not register my my bees at all with the state. And no. so I'm an illegal beekeeper, and which means that the honey that I produce and give to many lawmakers, to donors, to many of our supporters and friends, I tell them it is contraband, contraband. honey, which adds a little bit of sweetness to it. And, uh, and they like it a lot more for that kind of renegade reason. So, yes, it's totalitarianism on the bee side, but at least I'm practicing my libertarian kind of bona fides by resisting the law and embracing my totalitarianism in defiance of what the Utah legislature want me to do. Well, Tina, do we have to register our hives in Virginia? No, no. But you, you are supposed to get them inspected if you plan to sell a nuke or anything like that. So we don't, we don't have to, we don't have to register. No. That's right. We've got, uh, we've got open carry bees in uh, Virginia. <laughs> I do think it's interesting that it does highlight well, the fact that, uh, in order to have that kind of communist society that works, there sure is a lot of killing that goes on. They, they, any, anyone who's not uh, in line with the thinking of the rest of the hive is executed. Yeah. The the little, the little, yeah, the little, the little commie bee that wants to go hang out at the coffee shop and write poetry instantly gets killed for not producing. I, I will say, despite uh, the, the males all getting killed off, Nick, as you point out, while they're alive, they live a good life. They <laughs> exist merely to have sex with the queen and eat. Yeah. That's yeah. all that they do. So That's right. Oh, know, the patriarchy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, everyone talks about and the patriarchy. they're patri- all fat. They're big drones. Yeah, they everyone are. talks about the patriarchy. It's the matriarchal societies that set it up that way, all well, right? Well, you know, the reason the reason why the, the, the females are able to uh, kick them out and they, they can't do anything about it is because the men are unarmed. 
The men are unarmed. See, an unarmed, <laughs> unarmed people are vulnerable. That's wow. right. They don't have the drones. Don't have stingers, do they? Yep. Oh my gosh! We need sting control. Yeah. This is yep. good. we had to go for this for two reasons too. One because I, I, I mean, I, I find Tina started beekeeping uh, this year. This year, and it was funny because I'm know, an amateur. Yeah, <laughs> we call her Queen of the Bees, and we had some people on Instagram going, "Why do you call her Queen of the Bees?" Well, because we have bees, but mm-hmm. so. Uh, well, listen, we got uh, Hamilton. You yes. had a question. Connor, I know that we're about to wrap up and we just got through the fun part of the episode, but I was <laughs> looking through all the books that you've written and I noticed one which piqued my attention, which was Skip College. And I think that this is appropriate for us to talk about right now. We're recording this on a Wednesday. This episode comes out on, ne- tomorrow on Thursday, but we know that the Biden administration may be. No, no, no. It's breaking news. They just, he just did it. Oh, he, he just, just did announced it. it. Okay. So this is a fascinating topic yep. to me because I just graduated college just a few years ago. And I think that we're very quickly seeing college enrollment decline. And you wrote this book in 2019. So I just want to pick your mind about this, pick your brain about it. What are your thoughts on where college is go- going in enrollment? So this actually emerged from a different book I wrote called Passion Driven Education. Uh, that book is for parents, and it's Nick. It's much what you describe. It's customizing curriculum around the interests of a child to honor their individuality, rather than compelling them to be educated based on some template that some curriculum committee decided. It's honoring what their focus is, their God-given gifts, and helping them go down that path. And so I would go across the country speaking at like homeschooling conferences and whatnot. And what I was consistently seeing is that these families all recognize the problems with K through twelve government schools. That's a large part of the reason why they chose to pull their kids out and homeschool. And yet almost consistently, at least 80% plus of these parents were all fretting about how do I get a a diploma? How do I make sure my kids can get into college as a homeschooler? And they were not applying the same scrutiny to the college conveyor belt that they were to the K-12. And I'm sitting there saying, guys, it's worse right? It, you get way more propaganda. You get way more, pro- yeah, you get a little flexibility. You don't have to ask for permission to go pee, right? <laughs> but like from, from an ideological perspective, college is, is a, a bigger problem in terms of someone who cares about, you know, uh, giving their kids a foundation of kind of ideological truth. So um, the other angle there was, if you know John Taylor Gatto, he, he was a 30-year uh, public school teacher, very well known. He wrote several books kind of laying bare the problems of public school. It was very influential for me. And he wrote the foreword for Passion Driven Education. And then we started talking about this this issue. Hey, John, like, what does this look like for college? And let's, you know, do a book together. And, and so the book is a contribution of several people doing different chapters. That was the last thing John wrote before he passed away. He did a chapter all about kind of the uh, underground history of, of universities and a lot of the problems with them. Fundamentally, the book has this message. Uh, college is um, okay if, if you have eyes wide open, d- despite the provocative title, skip college. It's not necessarily advocating that no one go to college. It's saying that if you're going to go, have eyes wide open about the problems, have strategies to countermand them. And look, if you're going to be a doctor or lawyer, maybe you have to just suck it up and do it. But for everyone else, you can pursue a successful career in life without the debt, without a degree, without the distractions. Um, And so the book is actually very practical. Part of it is kind of the ideological, historical setting the foundation. But a lot of the content in the book is designed to say, here's an action plan. Here's how you can actually do this. Here are strategies that you can employ. And so it is a book that absolutely is well-primed right now because we are seeing enrollments going down. 
homeschooling, of course, has tripled. And I think I'm seeing just from even five years ago when I started focusing on this, I'm seeing a huge shift in the homeschooling community, community right. where they're now recognizing, oh, hey, maybe it isn't right for me. You're seeing a proliferation of things like Praxis and Code Camps and trade schools right, right. that are increasingly expanding their offerings to attract these people and say, you don't need to go in that direction. So as critical as I am of the school system, I'm actually very optimistic that COVID really accelerated school choice. We just saw this in Arizona the other day and other states like West Virginia. It's accelerating this kind of exit from the school system, the decline for colleges, a lot of online options, more flexibility. So I'm actually hopeful when it comes to kind of school choice and uh, school alternatives, because I think the word has gotten out about how big the problems are. Today's news uh, about, you know, Biden administration is just going to highlight that even further. Um, so I, I think this is great for those who are trying to attract those people to come down alternative paths because it's just creating a lot more customers for us and a lot more people who are inclined to like, maybe this is their red pill to say, that's ridiculous. I just this morning. And I'll, I'll end with this. Um, when the news started to break that they were maybe making this announcement, uh, someone on my team, one of our attorneys, she said, well, that's ridiculous. I clean toilets at 4am every day while right. all my roommates went, you know, to Hawaii, yep. and, you know, I, I, I worked so hard to not have any debt. And what message does this send kids like me who back then and who aren't going to do it in the future? And what does that mean for our economy more broadly? I think uh, there's going to be so much chatter around this around the midterms. I think a lot of parents are pissed off. They're going to start pushing their kids to go down alternatives instead of uh, uh, the college route. It gets me, despite all the chaos and the economic intervention and all the problems, there's no better advertisement for college alternatives than what Biden just announced right, today. Yeah. Um, and so I think the future can be bright despite the dark clouds that we're going to go well, through. I know you are speaking Christian's love language yes. right now because we have there, we have we have two we have two there are few we have two fairly recent college grads in this table right now, and uh, one of them is going to benefit from this, and the other oh, one is getting screwed. Don't, don't put me in that situation. <laughs> there are a few things I've seen Christian more angry about. Yeah, but. Well, it, it does. You know, it, they just created this horrible, perverse incentive. They're, they're passing themselves off as if they did something noble and wonderful and economically sound, when in reality, they just told everybody that had already worked hard to either right. pay their way through or pay off their loans. You know, hey, you did such a great job. We're not going to force you to pay off the loans for people that didn't do the same thing or haven't had a chance to do the same thing yet. But not only that, but I think it's interesting, too, when you start to see certain companies uh, within industries that have always traditionally hired from a specific right. type of university who have now come out and said, we're expanding to other universities because we're not getting we're not getting lawyers. We're not getting C, you know, we're not getting C-level staff. What we're getting is activists mm -hmm. and we need people that can actually do the work or do the job. And it's even more fascinating than in some of the most dynamic industries. Right. The real question is, can you do the work? Not here's a credential. And right. I do think we've raised college, and a lot of it is because of federal loans. We've created a culture within in some universities where they've told students that, oh, you just show them this magic piece of paper and that comes with a six-figure job. And it's like, well, no, that might open a door. That might be a necessary component. It sure as hell isn't a sufficient one because at some point you're going to have to produce. Right. Well, look, Connor, can't thank you enough for all of your work, all of your time. Tell everyone where they can find out more about the work that you're doing, where they can order the Tuttle Twins books. Tell them where they can find that. Thank you for having me. It's been a fun conversation, uh, so I'm thankful for having me on. The Tuttle Twins books, you're going to want to go to get them at TuttleTwins.com uh, because we have discounted prices there, but then a lot of uh, freebies. So like for the history book we mentioned, 
at tuttletwins.com slash history, you can get not only the book, but free curriculum, uh, audio book and videos as well. So we really try and sweeten the pot for people to come buy it from our website. That way we get your email, we have a conversation, you're up to date on other stuff that we're doing. So all of that is at tuttletwins.com. If you want to learn about our think tank, Libertas Institute, that's at libertas.org. And uh, you can find out a little bit about me at connorboyact.com. All right. Well, hey, thank you very much. Oh, so real quick, too. What about uh, socials, social media? Uh, yeah, just, uh, I mean, Libertas, Tuttle Twins, Connor Boyack, they're all just, you know, search anything on social. We're there, especially if you like spicy memes. Make sure to follow Tuttle <laughs> Twins on Instagram. We got a lot of those. They do. They do have some spicy memes. I'm, I'm not, look, I'm not either going to, I have not stolen memes from the Tuttle Twins. I've merely redistributed them in order to, <laughs> you know, get them out there for a more equitable distribution sure, to underserved sure. audiences. Yeah. <laughs> well, listen, Connor, it is very been inclusive a, of you. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> well, look, it has been an absolute pleasure. Please keep up the good work. We'd love to talk to you again in the future. But again, to everyone, go to TuttleTwins.com. Find these guys on social. Um, you know, again, whenever you have a group, whenever you have an organization that is not only you know, you know, helping you with your values to be able to make good arguments, to be able to instill those values within your children, to be able to you know help equip them to go out there and and understand these complex principles. You know, that is reason enough to support it. But when you have someone that does it well, that makes it enjoyable to watch, enjoyable to read, enjoyable to share, um, there's no excuse. So there's no excuse. So go over to TuttleTwins.com, find out more about this, purchase some of their stuff. Um, and if you don't, it's only because you hate America and you need to pray about that. Wow. All right. they, hey, look, I said what I said. I said <laughs> what I said. All right. Listen, once again, thank you all for joining us on this episode. Thank you, Connor, for your time. And we will see you next time. Once again, thank you very much for listening. If you want to support the show, again, one of the best ways you can do it is by heading over to GoodRanchers.com with promo code Nick. You're going to get $15 off. You sign up for one of those subscriptions, and you're going to get up to $480 of free meat with that subscription. You get to pick top sirloin, salmon, chicken breast, bacon. It is all up to you. Plus, if you're looking for gifts to get for the people that are impossible to shop for, GoodRanchers.com also has gift boxes. You need to act quick. This is part of their overall Black Friday special. So head on over to GoodRanchers.com, use promo code Nick, and once again, thank you for listening.